You know, this morning praying for Heather, uh, I'm going to make a comment. You know, the Wrights have two beautiful daughters, and both of them set an example of modesty. The Apostle Paul said that Christian women should dress in modest apparel. Sad to say, it seems some have never read that passage. But both Heather and Sarah have always been an example of modesty. Thank you for that example. Well, here we are. It's been a, I've never seen a summer and early fall in which so many people have been traveling. It's glad to see so many of you all are back. We're here today. <laughs> I know there are some of you who grew up in divided homes. Some of you grew up without a father. Some grew up with a mother who perhaps wasn't even really a mother. I grew up in exceptionally fortunate circumstances. I had a marvelous father and a marvelous mother, but also had another set of parents, my uncle and aunt. My father's sister, Aunt Elizabeth, had a hysterectomy through some uh, results of some very severe th problems she had. And so when I was born, my uncle and aunt came to the hospital and said to my mother and father, since we cannot have children, may we share yours. And they said yes. And so I grew up with two sets of wonderful parents, equal time probably with each set. Now, when I was first learning to talk, I could not say Aunt Elizabeth, so she became Aunt Biddy, <laughs> and that's what she became to everybody in the family, Aunt Biddy. I'm thankful for Aunt Biddy. Aunt Biddy was a wonderful student of the Bible and a woman of prayer, and she cared for me. I was bothered as a child because in the evening the adults would sit around and read the newspaper and I couldn't read. I had a friend named Wendell Knox, two years older than I, who'd started in the first grade, but it'd been a couple of years before I could get there and I couldn't read. He could read. And so Aunt Biddy taught me phonics. She had been a school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. And so she taught me phonics, how to sound out the various letters of the alphabet and I was able to teach myself to read. I thank God for Aunt Biddy. And she was an avid reader. And of course, I became an avid reader. And one day as I was reading a book, she said, how does it end? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just in the, oh, she said, I always read the end first. <laughs> oh, that runs a story. Why do you do that? She said, I only like to read stories that turn out well. So I always read the end first. I don't know about you, but if I, I read Chesterton's uh, Father Brown series when I was a child, I, I wouldn't like that if I knew the ending. <laughs> this morning we want to follow, however, Aunt Biddy's example and read the end of the book. In our Bible, we have 66 documents that we call books of the Bible, and we've combined them into a single book. By the word Bible comes from the Greek word biblios, which means book, so it's the book. 
And we want to look at the end of the story, the book of Revelation. But it's important this morning I want to emphasize any time we are studying or reading the Bible, our goal is not just to know the book, but to know the author of the book. When I was in seminary for three years, I also attended the Khan Academy. The Khan Academy, we did drama, we did elocution, I did a lot of Shakespeare, I read all the Shakespeare's plays, memorized part of them, recited them. I knew the book, but I didn't know Shakespeare. <laughs> Sad to say there are people in this world, I think, who know the book well, but don't know the author. For five years, I was involved in a psychiatric study group, and we met weekly with psychiatrists, psychologists, and all of my reading during those years had to do with psychiatry and psychology. And I was quite impressed as I read a book by one man who was psychoanalyzing Moses. And then a man named Theodore Reich wrote a book called The Mystery on the Mountain, and it was a, trying to analyze what was going on with Moses. I was amazed at how well that man knew the Bible. He knew the Hebrew, who knew who he brought out subtleties I'd never noticed. But he didn't know the author. It's important for us anytime we're involved in studying the book to be doing so with the desire to know the author and to know how he wants us to live and please him. Well, let's just take a little look, work at the book, a look at the book before we really get into it. The first eight verses are like the title page. We commented a couple of weeks ago that anyone who says we're going to study the book of Revelations doesn't know the name of the book, so I wonder if they even know anything about the book. But it is not the book of Revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his slaves things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his slave, John. Now the New American Standard says he communicated by his angel. The RSV, the NIV say made it known. Those really are not as good as the King James here. Because the Greek word is semano, which means to communicate by a symbol. And so the opening verse says that God is going to show us things by symbols. And this book is full of all kinds of colorful symbols. The writer of the book, as we notice, is John, but he's not the author. The author is Jesus Christ. Many of you have on your shelves books that say they are written by Watchman Nee. Did you know Watchman Nee only wrote one book in all of his life? He wrote The Spiritual Man, and later he said he wished he'd never written it because he had everything tied up too neatly. All the other books that you have on your shelf that have Watchman Nee as the author were written by Agnes Kinnear. Agnes Kinnear was a Scotsman who listened to lectures by Watchman Nee. He took notes, and out of those notes, he created all of these books, The Normal Christian Life, The Latent Power of the Soul, all of these. The writer was Agnes Kinnear. And the writer of the book of Revelation is John, but the author is Jesus Christ. 
12 times in the book. John is told to write and then is told what to write. And one time in chapter 10, verse 4, he started to write and Jesus said, stop, don't write that. So the author is Jesus, but the writer was John. And the audience of the book, as we notice in verse 4, are the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come from the seven spirits before his throne to the seven churches of Asia. Now the main body of the book is divided into four divisions. And each division begins with this expression, in the spirit. 110, 4-2, 17-3, and 21-10. And then each one of these, John is in a particular place. The first, he was in the spirit on Patmos, 1-9. He was in the spirit in heaven where he saw a throne, 4-1-2. He was in the wilderness in the spirit, 17-3. And in the spirit on a great high mountain, 21-10. So the, the book is divided into four divisions. Each one begins with in the spirit. And each one the spirit takes John someplace or he already was there as on Patmos. This morning, we're not going to get into an interpretation of the book. There are four major views, the historical, the futurist, the preterist, the idealist. But we're not going to get into the interpretation of the book. But this morning, let's let the book be what that opening verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do these symbols and stories Reveal to us concerning Jesus Christ. First, he is revealed to us as a glorified being. Think about John. For more than three years, he was with Jesus Christ night and day. The only time he was is when Jesus sent him off on a mission. He ate with Jesus, slept with Jesus by the roadside, probably used the latrine with him. He knew Jesus as well as anybody could. There one time in Matthew, all of the apostles are described as those whom Jesus loves. But John, speaking of himself, five times in his own biography of Christ, describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. In the upper room, you have to picture this, the, the, the uh, painting that we normally see of the Last Supper with Jesus in the middle, and there's this long table. That's not the way it was at all. Meals in those days were it eaten at a very low table, and around the table there was a series of couches, and each diner would lean on his left arm while reclining on a couch and eat with his right hand. And you could look back over your shoulder and talk to the person on that side, and he would lean forward and talk to you. And by the way, the Last Supper, that was probably Jesus probably leaned back and talked to Judas so he could whisper him, and the rest didn't know what he, what he said. The one just in front of him was John, the one who could lean back and speak to Christ. Now, when John says he's the one that leaned on Jesus' breast, what he's saying is I was the one next to him at the Last Supper. He intimately knew the Lord. But in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, the glorified Lord appeared and he fell down before him. Every time in Scripture, 
where the glorified, resurrected Lord appears. Awe and reverence overwhelm the observer. Now, as I was praying about what word God want brought, it this, brought this morning, along about Thursday, it seemed to me, well, he wanted a word brought about awe and reverence, which is lacking in so many churches, in many lives of Christians. I started down that way, and then he arrested me <laughs> and brought me to where we are today. But I still want to say it's very tragic today that awe and reverence for God are absent in too much of our culture and, sadly to say, in our churches. Scripture says concerning the reason the culture has gone awry is there's no fear of God in their eyes. It's interesting, every time you find someone have an encounter, like Isaiah did in chapter 6, they saw the Lord high and lifted up and fell before him, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips, and so on. Every time you find someone falling before God in awe, the next words are, be not afraid, every time. So are only those who are in the wrong relationship with God need to have terror. Those who are in a right relationship fall before him in reverence and awe. I regret that we have taken that wonderful word, awe, and have used it so colloquially now it's lost its meaning. Someone has a great soccer play. Oh, it was awesome. Uh, someone does this. It's awesome. Prior to recent days, awe meant to have an encounter that caused you to be dumbstruck. What a word. We can't use it with that anymore because it's become too colloquialized. But reverence and awe and the appropriate fear of God. Oh, how I long personally to see a rebirth of that, especially in our churches. Next, Jesus is revealed is the one who holds the key to death in Hades, verses 17 and 18 in chapter 1. Now, Hades is the Greek word for the dead, uh, the, the abode of the dead. Uh, in, 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 the, in the scripture, we see Hades as the abode of the dead. We might think of Hades as having two apartments. One apartment, great big one, where everyone who is in the kingdom of God is with Jesus waiting for the judgment day. Those who are not in Christ are down in the basement. <laughs> Peter calls it Tartarou, in prison, so to speak. Hades is the abode of the dead. Those of us who are in Christ when we leave here go into Hades, but we'll go into that apartment with Jesus. Praise. That's where my wife is today. I look forward to joining her sometime. The abode of Christ. But Jesus said to Peter, Upon this rock, speaking of his church, of himself, himself, his being, upon this rock of who I am, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, now the King James says hell, bad translation, it's the word Hades. But the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, some say overcome. In Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 15, death is described as Satan's prison camp of fear. But praise be to God. <laughs> The gates of Hades, the gates of that prison camp will be shattered when Jesus Christ comes forth 
and all of us will come with him. The early church had trouble grasping that truth. Remember, Paul wrote to the First Corinthians, first wrote to the Corinthians, First Corinthians 15, that wonderful resurrection chapter. And there were some people saying, there can be no resurrection. We can't believe that. And Paul said, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And he goes on and on and on, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, demonstrating that there will be a resurrection. And those of us who conduct funerals routinely will always recite the closing verses of that wonderful chapter concerning the resurrection. Thessalonica, they had a different problem. The Thessalonians were so excited about the second coming of Jesus, they could hardly wait. They watched the clouds. Some quit their jobs and sat down and said, Come, Lord Jesus. And as they were waiting, one member of the church died. Another member of the church died. Another member of the church died. And they began to grieve because they missed the second coming of Christ. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul corrects their mistake. In verse 13, he says, We who are alive will not go before, but they will be raised. We'll join them. We'll be changed. Don't worry about it. <laughs> He's coming. And those who have gone before will come with him. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? Every one of us, who's lived very long, realizes that our bodies are fragile and they're not made to last forever. But our spirit is, and that resurrected body will last forever. Praise his holy name. In the New Testament, the hope that is spoken of consistently is the resurrection. The Greek word elpis, which means hope, occurs 54 times in the New Testament. Thirteen times, it's kind of casual, I hope to see you, but all of the other times it is used, it refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection with him. What a glorious hope. Jesus Christ is presented as the one who holds the keys to Hades and death. Chapters 2 through 3. Jesus is presented as the judge of the churches. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, so we will not spend any time on it except to say this. As a judge, he doesn't need to call witnesses to give a testimony. He already knows. Every one of them. To Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. Smyrna, I know your tribulation poverty. Pergamon, I know where you dwell. Thyatira, I know your deeds. Sardis, I know your deeds. Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Laodicea, I know your deeds. He doesn't need anybody to get up and tell him. He knows. <laughs> and he's the one who judges the churches. And then he's presented to us as being one who is worthy of the same praise as is bestowed on God the Father. That's in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4, you see one who sits upon the throne. And the scene that you see in these closing verses of chapter 4 is almost an echo of what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And then in chapter 5, you find a lamb standing 
And this is an interesting terminology. It says he is standing, but he is as one who's been slain. Isn't that an interesting figure? (laughs) And then in chapter 5, you see him taking from the one on the throne the scroll. So it's the Lamb, the Son of God, who takes the throne, or rather the scroll from the one on the throne. So the one on the throne in this image, not elsewhere in the New Te- in Revelation, but here is God the Father, and God the Son then takes the scroll. And then as we proceed on, we find in chapter 5, verses 9 and 14, he is worshipped the same way God the Father is worshipped. I sometimes am concerned that in our worship we sometimes forget God the Father. It seems the pendulum has gone the other way. Every prayer in the New Testament is always prayed to God the Father. We need to worship the Father as well as the Son best if we worship them together because indeed they are as one. And then there's an extensive section, 11 chapters, in which Jesus is revealed as the one who releases upon this globe all of the forces of life and death, the seeds of history, all of the ebb and flow of nations. Having taken that scroll from the one on the throne, there is grief because it is sealed and no one can open the seals. But then here is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and because he has been slain, he is qualified to open the scroll. Now, what this scroll is, it is a scroll that contains the story of history, the different epochs and the different eras. And so the Lamb takes the first seal away, and here is the first epoch. And he takes the second seal away, And here's the next epoch. And one by one, the history of the world and heaven is being revealed as the scroll is unrolled seal by seal in these 11 chapters. We're reminded of Hebrews chapter 1, which tells us that God in times past spoke unto the fathers in many ways and many seasons by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, who is the heir of all things, the perfect image of God. Some versions say the effulgence, some say the brightness, some say the glory, so on and so on. After he's made atonement, he sat down right hand. Then it says he upholds all things by his power. Think about that. What's going on in the world today? It depends on what's in Jesus' hands. (laughs) And what he releases. We sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. The hands that hold it have nail prints. Because they're the hands of the one who died for you and me. I spoke uh, Wednesday at the In His Image retreat for second year medical residences. We talked about being a slave of Jesus. Many of you know that's sort of my life message. But I want you to think about this. When there's a slave market, those who are going to buy slaves come to the dock and look 
at all of the slaves for sale. Here's an old guy, you can't get any work out of him, I'm not going to buy him. Here's a woman, looks like she could bear children, I'll buy her and that'll increase my stable. Here's a young man who can do a lot of work, that one's too ugly, I don't want that one. Jesus looked at them and said, I'll take the whole lot <laughs> and I will pay for them the greatest price that has ever been paid and ever can and will be paid. And this divine being who seal by seal unrolls the scroll and determines the history of nations epoch by epoch and era by era is the one who has paid the price for us. I can't put my mind around that. Can you? As he peels away the fifth seal, a picture is shown to us of an altar. And under that altar are the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And they say to the Lamb, How long before you avenge our blood? The Lamb says, Be patient. Rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. I don't remember where it was, maybe from this pulpit or the class sometime in the last couple of weeks. So if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. Matthew chapter 24 talks about the end of the age and it says the gospel shall be preached to all nations then comes the end of the age that's one thing that has to happen but there's something else that has to happen too that everybody on Jesus list of martyrs has to die I don't know who's on that list and neither do you and neither will we know when it's completed but think of that Jesus has a list, looking down through the years, of all who are predestined to die for the gospel. And the end will not come until that list has been completed. And notice 1 Peter, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God Entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Notice, according to the will of God. Revelation 7, 9 to 12, 14, we see Jesus pictured as being in the midst of his martyrs. And then as he begins to continue to unroll the scroll, and the epics of history are unfolded, the horrible wrath of the Lamb is revealed. God says, I've had enough. There's a limit to my patience. 
And the people who begin to experience this cry out in horror. Romans, uh, Revelation 6.16, they said to the mountains, the rocks fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 9.6, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They'll long to die and death flees from them. The Lamb releases angels that bring a plague upon the earth that destroy one-third of mankind. And yet, surviving humanity is so hardened, it does not repent. 9, 20 to 21, and 16, 9 to 11. So there are several other figures to impress upon us. There is a time coming when the wrath of the Lamb is going to be released upon this earth. When's that going to be? <laughs> I spoke to a man this past week who spends a lot of time studying the Old Testament as well as the New. And he's convinced that Jesus is going to come back on Rosh Hashanah, which was last starting at 6 o'clock Wednesday night and going through Sunday. There's a fellow in Ohio that sends me his newsletters, and he's into all kinds of other things. And and in Revelation, we read about the sign of the woman eager to give birth to a child and so on. Now, last night, September 23rd, there were two constellations that came together that fulfilled his understanding <laughs> of what that's going to be. Of course, he said it's re released to Israel, not the rest of us, urging us to know the signs of the times. I don't know, <laughs> but there's a time coming when the wrath of the Lamb is revealed. And there's a time coming when Jesus comes. The next section pictures Jesus as the ultimate victor in conquest over forces of Satan, chapters 17 to 19. Now, we have a preview of this. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever to ever. And so in these chapters you see dragons, beasts, a harlot, all kinds of forces coming to withstand Christ. But he's the victor. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. And then the curtain on history rings down with the Lamb revealed as the judge. Chapter 20 verses 11 to 15. You know, a song we used to hear sung, The Great Judgment Morning. I'm not going to sing it. I could. But I dreamt that the Great Judgment Morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamt that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and swore on land and sea, and swore with his hand raised to heaven, the time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing when the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. It'll be that way someday. 
It'll be that way someday. Jesus is revealed in these seven ways then in this book. He's revealed to us as a glorified being. He's revealed to us as the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. The one who is a judge of the churches. The one who is worthy of praise. The one who releases upon the earth the various seasons of history. The one who is the ultimate victor in the conquest over the forces of Satan. The Lamb of God is revealed then as the judge of all humanity. And then notice how the book closes. After Jesus has revealed himself in these figures, and then we have this wonderful description of heaven where there's no need for sun or moon because the tabernacle of God is with men and the light is the Father and the Son. The tree of life, the water of life, how beautiful. But then three times he says, Behold, I come quickly. 22 verse 7, 22 verse 12, 22 verse 20. Behold, I come quickly. And the sense is it doesn't mean shortness of time, but it means quickly without warning. Wouldn't it be great if that were today? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great that before we get home, we'd hear a big blast <laughs> and the clouds would be rolled back? Stand with me. Let's sing the last verse of it as well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. It is well. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.